star T minus 10 seconds. The cultists present. Nine, eight, cinema. Of cruelty. Three. Five by five. One. We have ignition. Yes. Hello, and welcome to Five by Five, where today we'll be counting down the finest films that we've seen so far. Yeah, we're going to try something a little bit new as an in-between our regular episodes. That's true. Most people here might be looking at this runtime and thinking to themselves, well, wait a minute. This isn't going to last me until my lunch break. What the hell's with this episode? Yeah, just get some shorter stuff out there because... Recommendations are always, well, not always appreciated, but we're going to give them to you anyway. And people (laughs) like lists, right? People like to rank stuff. So we're going to start ranking some stuff. Yeah, because the internet, it loves it a good list. Yeah. It really does. We're going to get in on that. Top five thingies or 17 facts you won't believe. I mean, there are like 100 facts you won't believe about London, but that's a whole other thing. Yeah. I don't believe any of them that I hear. Yeah. You're saying I'm unbelievable? That's sweet. <laughs> oh, it's, uh, I don't like indirectly saying sweet things. But London, for our inaugural top five, what are we going to count down today? Yeah. So we thought we would actually count up, I guess, more than... <laughs> no, I guess it is a countdown, right? We go from five to one. So whatever. So yeah, sure. we are going to rank our respective top favorite episodes from our first year of doing this. Because that's a question I get a lot, actually, is which episodes I like the best or I liked doing the best. So I'm like, you mm-hmm. know what? We'll just put this down on record and Why then not? it'll be stuck out there in the ether and I won't be able to change my mind Even though I will, it'll probably change. So, shall we begin? I guess we shall. We are doing honorable mentions in this too, right? Well, of course. And I actually have like a couple honorable mentions. It's the first rank list, you know? Sure, sure, sure. I can't be brief. Again, folks, if you're not familiar, brevity, not our strong suit. It's like our unofficial catchphrase. So what is your honorable mention? I'm actually very interested to hear what your top five episodes that we've done are because, yeah, we didn't discuss this beforehand. No, we did not. It's going to be a surprise. Going in fresh, folks. This is unscripted, uncut, raw. No, it's most likely cut. We're cutting something, I'm sure, from this, but whatever. So my honorable mention might be a little confusing to our longtime listeners. My honorable mention is Tammy and the T-Rex. Aw, Tammy and the T-Rex. Yes. Some people will say, wait a minute, you didn't do an episode about Tammy and the T-Rex. Well, we did and we didn't. So, not to get too behind the scenesy on everyone here, but when Linda and I started doing this, we recorded some practice episodes. Episodes we knew we were not used because we didn't know what the hell we were doing or really what the format was going to be. But... We recorded an episode for Tammy and the T-Rex, and while we had started to get a grasp on our format, what we did not have a grasp on was audio quality. Because we recorded Tammy and the T-Rex, just the two of us, in an empty room. As in a room that had nothing on the walls, just a bare room, and the echoing in this thing was absurd. And we liked what we had talked about. It was one of the first times we really dove into all the special features in a DVD and everything like that, looked up all the information that we could on an episode and brought that to it. 
it was the first time that I began to notice London's oddly adorable habit of just taking a deep breath and saying, let me tell you about this outfit. Because oh Denise Richards- Oh my God, Richard you called me unbelievable and adorable in this episode. What is wrong with you? Uh, this is freaking feel, me out. I feel ill. Uh, God. I am adorable. Shut up. Proceed. <laughs> the problem was the echo in the episode was absolutely horrible. And I was beginning to learn a lot more about how to edit audio and audio engineering. And I learned that you can do things in your audio editor, depending on what it is, the software, to remove reverb and echo from sound. But the problem is that the echo and reverb is still part of the audio. And the analogy I found that worked really well here is, imagine you have a giant hunk of chewing gum stuck in your hair. How do you get it out? Most of the time, you have to cut it out. So, can you remove all of the chewing gum? Yes. Is your hair going to look exactly the same as it did before? Fuck no. And when I removed all the reverb and echo from that episode, the audio sounded horrendous. It was this strange, tinny, nasty sound that we just thought, there's no way we can use this, unfortunately. And I, I just put this as an honorable mention because we both really enjoyed that movie. The rare exceptions, I, do, I never say that a movie that we watch is bad. It's just unconventional. A lot of people would say Tammy the T-Rex is a bad movie. Not us. We see Tammy the T-Rex, we say, fuck yes. However, just because we were novices to the audio game, we weren't able to use the episode. Maybe one day we'll revisit Tammy the T-Rex. It would be fun. But yeah, it's my honorable mention in the lessons learned category of films. Yeah, to be fair, we were at a friend's house because we were both on vacation and it just didn't dawn on us at the time. We understood afterwards, oh yeah, we were in an empty room, but we didn't think about it beforehand. But yes, yeah. Tammy the T-Rex, fantastic film, baby Paul Walker, little Denise Richards, and uh. an animatronic dinosaur. So go check that one out, and we will at some point probably revisit that film because it is fantastic. Right. Did you have other honorable mentions that was the one okay. i didn't realize you would have multiple Usually so let's just go I ahead and get into your, could not your multiple decide all right what's brevity folks <laughs> fuck shakespeare brevity is not the soul of wit forget whatever the fuck that english twit said so yes my honorable mention <laughs> goes out first honorable mention to i woke up early the day i died because okay. it was a film the last Ed Wood film, a film that I had always wanted to find and see. And yet, for those of you who heard that episode, learned it is very, very hard to find. And I don't think we would have put in the effort to find it as fervently as we did if we had not started to do this cast and been like, no, we got to do it. We got to put it out there. Mm -hmm. Another honorable mention goes to Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans, because that is a movie that... I didn't actually even fully appreciate going into the research as much as I did coming out of the research. So that was one of the few films that going in, I was like, oh, I don't know how I feel about this movie. There's something about it. It's working, but it's also a little weird. And then when I really sat down to pick it apart, I was like, oh, okay, this is the Dadaist weird thing that Werner Herzog is trying to do to the genre of cop films and suddenly it all made sense so that one took me sitting down to actually like really look into it we must meet this bad lieutenant and find out why the bad lieutenant is so bad 
Also, who cares about the drugs? Yeah. <laughs> then my other honorable mention, oh, this might be in my fifth place, but you know, it's, it's hard. But it yeah. goes out to Swiss Army Man. That was mm. an episode we had a guest on, our yeah, dear friend Robbie. Robbie from the K-Bay podcast. And it is one of his favorite films of all time, which I found really fascinating. And because of that, I was able to watch that movie with a more critical, deeper eye, as it were, and learn a lot about the music on that because Robbie brought to us the music and what was going on with the music in that episode. And so I learned a lot from our guest, Robbie. <laughs> and yeah. so that made the film just that much more spectacular and beautiful. Okay, so. I'll, I'll, I'm going to add an honorable mention. Okay. I'm going to add one on. And that is A Dangerous Method because that is another guest episode. I just realized I didn't have any guest episodes on our on my full list, but that was an episode we had Dr. Michelle Vaughn, PhD, on. It's not necessarily one of her favorite movies, but I do truly love episodes, much like how Robbie brought the music aspect of Swiss Army Man uh, with him. Michelle Vaughn, uh, Dr. Michelle Vaughn, PhD. She brought in the... <laughs> I just always call her that. I should just call her Michelle. She'd be... Anytime I say that, she says, oh, for God's sakes, no, I no one ever introduced themselves as Dr. Whatever, PhD, for fuck's sake. I know, sake. you should call me Dr. London, PhD. I won't, though. <laughs> I know, nobody should. I really won't. It's so amazingly pretentious, which you think I would embrace, but no. I have enough trouble just calling you by your actual name, let alone adding some titles and distinctions to it. Fuck that noise. Yeah. He has the coffee mug that says, I heart London on it. He does. I, that, that, yeah, that's shit. Let's, let's just stay focused. Stay focused for fuck's sake. I saw okay? that in his kitchen once and I was like, oh man, you have been caught. <laughs> you love me. You do. Nope. You really nope. love me. <laughs> Which is extra sad because it's unrequited because I can't stand him. I can't stand looking at him right now. What's your number five? Uh, my number, uh, what was I? Well, okay, the, the final thing I was going to say, like you said about for a dangerous method is it was beautiful for... Uh, Dr. Vaughn to bring that expertise to it, which she also did when we did Requiem for a Dream. So put that in the guest appearance honorable mentions as well. That was a very early episode for us too. Okay, but my number five. My number five is The Pillow Book. Ah, interesting. All right, why The Pillow Book? Well, what I like about doing this podcast is that we take movies that we really enjoy and by digging into them, we discover new things about them. And then sometimes one of us will suggest a movie that the other person knew nothing about, and we get to discover movies in that fashion. I had never heard of The Pillow Book, or the director of The Pillow Book, or really anything related to The Pillow Book at all. And the style of that film was so foreign to me and so different that it was just a joy to go on a road of discovery while watching that film and, and really digging into it. And, yeah, lots of you and Dick in that film. Yeah, that's another reason for sure to go on a top five list. Just lots of dick. If you're someone who feels that the balance of female frontal nudity and male frontal nudity is askew in cinema, Which the it pillow is. book. You will. It, I mean, it is. I shouldn't say if you're someone who feels like. If, if you're someone who recognizes that. Yes, who recognizes the very objectful truth fact <laughs> that there's a an, an off balance amount of female nudity to male nudity. And feel like there was not enough dick in Game of Thrones. By God, have I got a movie for you where <laughs> the sausages are out. They are out. They are dangling. It's a good old dangly time and Ewan McGregor, not shy. I guess that was also the film where 
London educated me on just how often Ewan McGregor gets his dick out for movies. Yeah, he does. Even the movies where he doesn't get his dick out, there's kind of a reference to his dick. If you think on Moulin Rouge, there's that bit where Satine is beginning to seduce him, pulls down his pants, looks down, and we don't see anything. But she just says, big boy. And the guys are outside, like, looking in. They're like, he's got a huge talent. And, you know, the old school Ewan McGregor fans from the Pillow Book and Velvet Goldmine days are like, fuck, yeah, he does. Yeah. Damn straight. Yeah, he brings it. He brings it all, <laughs> as it were. And then he gets skinned and turned into a book. Spoilers? Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> yeah. Spoiler alert. The pillow After book the is fight. made out of people. <laughs> the pillow also book Also, Ewan's penis. Yeah, I guess it's immortalized in literary yeah. press. Oh. So, yeah, that was my top five for Ewan's penis right there. Yeah. Number five. Okay. You're number five. My number five is Don't Look Now. Oh, okay. Yeah, a little 1970s film. Yeah. I had seen it a couple of times, knew that filmmakers absolutely loved this film. And I could understand that watching it, that a lot of technical stuff was going on. But there was something that was just an absolute joy about having the excuse to sit down and really just break the technicalities of that film down frame by frame, because there's just so much going on. We mentioned in that episode that it is just a puzzle and it gives you all of these pieces and to assemble those pieces in systematic order was very, very cool. And yeah, so I think that's one of our more technical episodes that we've really Definitely. done. What is your number four? My number four was in your honorable mentions. I woke up early the day I died. Yeah. For lots of reasons. I guess it kind of ties in with the pillow book where I enjoy discovering new films. But that, I think, is a discovery for everyone. Because neither one of us had seen the movie going into it. I think I had read somewhere that there was a movie that was based on an Ed Wood script and had post-Titanic Billy Zane in it. And that was Billy really Zane. all that we knew. Billy Zane, you know, good-looking guy. What can I say? Actually, I think it was Robbie from the K-Bay podcast in our Swiss Army Man episode that he listens to our episodes because Robbie's awesome. And his takeaway after listening to a bunch of them was, I didn't realize that you were so obsessed with Billy Zane. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> you didn't, man, didn't you? Well, now you do. This movie is justification for being obsessed with Billy Zane because... Fuck, man, he's like fresh off a of Titanic, and he's probably got more stroke in Hollywood than most people ever will in their lives, and he uses that notoriety or that star power to help create an Ed Wood movie. And like, I think we said this in the episode, and you kind of mentioned in your honorable mentions, it's not a tribute to Ed Wood or an Ed Wood-like film. It is a movie that is being made from an Ed Wood script, so it's just an Ed Wood movie. Now, some people might say that an Ed Wood movie needs to be written and directed by Ed Wood. Whatever. Those people are party poopers. <laughs> Fuck off. But that, combined with just how bizarrely difficult that thing was to find, I don't know if we ever talked about it on the episode, but to find that movie, I had to search for it on Google, and I was probably about four pages deep in the search results. No one should ever go four pages deep in the search results for anything because you've lost by then. But it was in the fourth page that I finally found a website that seemed to be saying that it had the thing for 
it was available on DVD-R or direct download. The direct download was the cheapest option, and I thought, I don't know if this will even work, so I'm going to go with the cheap option for right now. And sure enough, I got back the video file for the movie that was... I want to say it was like YouTube circa 2006 quality uh, on the resolution. It was pretty low, pretty low resolution on that. But yeah, did get it, and my god, it worked. We both just took to that movie like no one else, this diamond in the rough of insane films that Billy Zane made happen, and it made me appreciate how crazy Ed Wood was. I ended up rereading Nightmares and Ecstasy, which was the book that inspired Tim Burton's Ed Wood, and also just dug into, yeah, Ed Wood's later life, which definitely had its ups and downs and tragic ends, to be sure, but it was a beautiful reason to rediscover Ed Wood and just to go into all the crazy techniques that went into that film, I Woke Up Early the Day I Died, and Billy Zane and Dragon, the first part of that, holy shit. Yeah, he's so pretty. He's so pretty. <laughs> Love Billy Sand so much. Love him so much. Uh, so what's your number four? All right, my number four is Showgirls. Hey, all right. Because although I'm not as obsessed with Verhoeven as I am Billy Zane, because very few <laughs> things reach Billy Zane level of adoration and love, I really am a huge Verhoeven fan. And mm-hmm. Showgirls... It's just so underappreciated by so many people. It gained this reputation of being a campy, so bad it's good movie. And our episodes are generally not review-based. We tend to not be ones that are really throwing down a this is good or bad. We're more about the deep dives and the annotations. You can generally assume that we like it enough to talk about it for two and a half hours. So Mm -hmm. that's why it comes on in the first place. But Showgirls was one of our few episodes that we heavily threw down the gauntlet of this movie is fantastic. Like it is actually (laughs) genuinely a good piece of cinema. And here is why. So we presented our in defense of showgirls the case of showgirls quality and whether or not we convinced people of that or not i don't know but we put it out there and that's what's important to me because i do think it's a very good work and that it's very misunderstood and tends to be read in ways as we talked about in the episode it is a deliberate verhoven satire and most people took it as earnest and thus can't be because yeah it fails at being earnest but it didn't try yeah. to be earnest so. I, I know like if you're watching that and you think that this is an earnest retelling of a story like um your definition of earnest confuses me that definitely was the birth of the fuck my life film festival though because for That's that true. movie i did watch obviously watch showgirls a few times for notes and what have you and it thoroughly enjoyed it of course but then discovered that there was a sequel showgirls 2 pennies from heaven written and directed by Rena Riffle. I, did, I don't think I went too hard on it because it's clearly a, a work of passion for Rena Riffle. There were two cuts of the thing I found online, and I watched both of them. And the movies, were they were both just so weird and disjointed, I couldn't even really bring anything that I had observed in that process to the episode. I think if you go back and listen to that, I briefly mentioned that there are some sequels to it, but... Yeah, I don't really go into much detail. 
I also listened to the soundtrack to Showgirls the Musical, which was a fan-produced thing. Some of the songs were actually kind of cool. I think I played snippets of them in mm-hmm. the episode. Uh, I, I thought those were pretty neat. I love that the woman who plays the main character in Showgirls the Musical had been in a previous fan musical called Saved by the Bell the Musical playing the Jesse Spano part. So when it comes to portraying characters that Elizabeth Berkley went crazy on on stage, this uh, she's the one to go to. What, what can you say? Yeah. Yeah. All Good right. times. What's your number three? My number three is, you'll like this, The Astrologer. Oh, all right. Yeah. One of the genres of, I don't want to say bad film, of unconventional film that I love so much is The Vanity Project. A vanity project. Makes a lot of sense for you. You know what? You're one to talk. I would not star in my own film. Uh I would write one and I would direct one. You would actually Uh star in it. I don't do things in front of a camera. I am not good in front of a camera. (laughs) I can see why. Yeah, you you put a camera in front of me. I I shut down. It's crazy. I don't know what it is. I'm gifted in other ways. It's a great way to stop her from doing things. If uh, we're going somewhere and I want her to not enter the room, I'll just take out my camera and just point just it at her. Like, oh, God, it's no. like, no, I can't enter. Yeah. Oh, run away, run away. But I do love Vandy films because they provide an unfiltered look at a single person's perception of the world and of themselves. And that's kind of what we got with the astrologer and Craig Denny in that we're seeing how how awesome he thought astrology was or how awesome he thought numerology was. He's not showing off numerology or astrology in any substantive way. He's just kind of saying, yeah, it's awesome and I'm awesome at it, but that's really about all that we get in that film. And also that film was just a fascinating way to peek into his life. You just think, okay, what in this movie was of you, Craig Denny? I'm not too sure. Because the information on him is still a mystery. It's out there in the vapors. I think that we're starting to learn a little bit more about him as the weeks go by. As more people get interested in the astrologer, there's more of an effort to dig into Craig Denny. And maybe there's someone who has great investigative skills who listened to the episode and really wanted to dig into it more. So if you do, more power to you. Do that. Uh, But yeah. In fact, there was someone out there who is doing some investigative work that contacted us. You don't fucking say. Yeah. (laughs) And it was very exciting, actually. They have put in a lot of research so far. And so perhaps, hopefully, we will team up with them once they're a little bit further along in their research process to interview them and say, like, bring us your Craig Denny facts. Because, yeah, there's a lot. Craig Denny, not his birth name. Uh, this person had learned, and they had found the parents of Craig Denny, the mother and the father, that they had met in Colorado, and that Craig Denny, it looked like, had been born in California, but kept telling people he was born other places. There was a newspaper article that claimed that he was born in Oklahoma, and this researcher was like, nope, he's never been to Oklahoma, I don't know why, he would say. (laughs) I mean, that had to be a lie that you would tell for the sake of a job or something that is in the moment advantageous to you. Because I don't mean to disparage Oklahoma here or anything, but you don't really ever hear of someone from California saying, oh no, I'm actually from Oklahoma. I live in California, I'm actually from Oklahoma though. Like, what? What a strange, random place to... Yeah, it seems like an odd thing to... 
yeah. flame. So I don't know. So yeah, the mysteries of Craig Denny continue on. So hopefully we'll be able to bring you some more facts about him at some point. Your number three. My number three is a humble little film called The Fast and the Furious. Ah, there it is. There yes, it is. The Fast yep. and the Furious. Oh, our strange uniting film series love. <laughs> yes. It, it's possibly one of the only reasons that Benji and I put up with each other as much as we do is because nobody else will actually sit down and watch all of the Fast and the Furious films in sequence without stopping with us. And we've done that on multiple occasions because these movies are important. We haven't just watched the Fast and the Furious movies in sequence. We've watched them all in different sequences. That's true. There is the true Furious order that one should watch them in, which yes, I don't have written down here. But otherwise, but it, I, I should, because that didn't know, actually I, I, make it into the Fast and the Furious episode, the order in which one we didn't should get watch to, it. I think we briefly talked about it, and then maybe we just cut it for time, because... Yeah, we did. <laughs> I mean, really, side note, folks, you think our episodes are long when we post them. You don't even want to know what the raw recordings look like. Yeah. It's scary. It okay? is a tragedy. It's terrifying. But, yeah, I think that the... I don't have it written down myself, but just off the top of my head, I'm pretty sure it's the first movie, the fourth movie, fifth movie, sixth movie, then the third movie, because Tokyo Drift takes place after the sixth movie, because the sixth movie is when Han is done doing heist with the crew and then goes to Tokyo and then he's killed off by Jason Statham. Well, we think he's killed off. <laughs> Sorry if you haven't seen the trailer for the ninth movie, but there's some questions to be answered Oh, yeah, there. no, he's back. He's back. Yeah. So that was the other crazy thing. There is a moment where we see Brian in the trailer. Oh, yeah, Fast yeah. Uh, what's his face? Uh, Lucas Black. Yeah, he's back in the Well, Lucas the thing, is, so. but I mean, like, Brian O'Connor, a.k.a. Paul Walker, is in... Wait, what? Yeah, the trailer of F9. And so people were like... What's going on there? The fuck? Because what? Paul Walker, unfortunately, no longer with us and hasn't been for several yeah. years now. Justin Lin, I think he's the one that's doing F9, right? Okay. I uh, yeah. looked up some interviews with him, and he did mention that they're not bringing him back as a full character in the way that they finished Good. out F7, Good. but that it's really important to the Fast family to establish that, no, Brian O'Connor as a character is still very much alive and a part of the universe. And so mm -hmm. they don't want to just completely write him off and never mention him again or just occasionally say his name off screen. So they're sure. trying to figure out respectful ways to kind of keep his memory alive in the universe of the film and just have him be around in some capacity. So. Oh, that's fair. Yeah. Hey, you know, if one of Paul Walker's brothers comes in, does some motion capture or whatever, stands in, and the Walker family gets a check... Hey, I'm all for it. That's great. Yeah, I mean, I'm all for them just completely holographically bringing him back into, like, all the rest of the movies because <laughs> I... God damn, I miss that character, but... I don't know how I feel about that, <laughs> but... Uh, I'm, I'm fine with it. I'm totally fine I, I with think it. the main thing to take away from The Fast and the Furious is just to remember that the single most bizarre moment of both of our lives is that London and I sat together and wept... <laughs> At the end of Fast and the Furious 7. In theaters, yeah. <laughs> in theaters. We said it's like we were two people that went to a weepy rom-com or some shit like that. And the that montage of Paul Walker 
starts up at the very end of that where you got Vin Diesel's voiceover is like, whether you're a quarter mile away or halfway around the world, you will always be my brother. Like, <laughs> Paul Walker. Oh, my God. Yeah, no, it was- oh, my God. Paul Walker. And then the car separated. The one car that Paul Walker's <laughs> in goes off into the sunset. And then the, the, the camera pans up to the sun and it says, for Paul. Oh, oh my God. Yeah, it was... I think an understandable reaction because <laughs> the world lost a great treasure. But oh, at the same man. time, it was hilariously surreal that we're like bawling yeah. in the theaters. You have Fast and the Furious <laughs> movie. And yeah, yeah, that, that happened. But uh. Fast and the Furious makes my number three slot just because, as we also mentioned on that episode, as much as I absolutely adore where the franchise ended up as this really over-the-top action sequence franchise. The first film is its own thing. It is a very contained ethnographic film about the street racing community in Echo Park. It has a very tight script. It's very grounded (laughs) compared to where the film franchise would go. And so there's just something that's beautiful about this very simple film that would then go on to be one of the larger franchises and one of the longer running franchises we've had in action film history. Yeah. Just being able to really take that film seriously for two and a half hours as a very careful artistic piece of filmmaking. And I do not mean that ironically, like go listen to that episode and you will hear us talk about how Some of the technical decisions in that film are great. And Mm -hmm. I think one of my favorite moments in an episode overall was just one of the few times that we agreed so fervently with each other was going through the first race sequence in Fast and the Furious. (laughs) And I think you had some sort of line where it's like, this is by far one of the most astounding sequences of hyper editing that I have ever seen in a film. And I'm like, agreed, man. So <laughs> we were just like, just totally fanboying on just the technicalities of the Fast and the Furious Absolutely. movie. And that, I, I stand by that. I think that's a legitimate uh, look at the film, but it's also really fun to just, the fact that, yeah, we really geeked out on the technicalities of the first Fast movie for two and a half hours. Super mm-hmm. fun. Despite your Vin Diesel Mickey Mouse impression. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy, I live my life a quarter mile no, that, that, that was not a prompt. That was not a lead-in for you to do it again. <laughs> no, you can't, you can't say it and expect me to not do it. Come on. Come All on right, now. what is your number two? What is my number two, London? You want to guess what the number two movie, the second greatest film we've ever done is? <laughs> Did you Can really take Hercules in New York as your number two? For reasons. I have reasons behind this. <laughs> okay, and it's not just because I wanted to do that voice. It's the only reason. But to me, one of the core tenets of our podcast, of the cinema of cruelty, is our deep dives and our annotations. And in some movies, there's a lot, sometimes not as much, But there is always a rabbit hole to go down with whatever film you might happen to be working on. And I think that a great example of that there's always a rabbit hole principle is Hercules in New York. Not because it's an outstanding film or because it's a unique film or anything like that, but simply because on the surface level, you wouldn't think that there's a lot to dive into with that film. It's Schwarzenegger's first movie. He's terrible. He's dubbed. It's kind of goofy. There's a lot of weird 
Greek music throughout it? What do you really get into with that? But just going through simple things like the people thanked in the credits to that film, the special thanks, diving into each company that was involved with that, diving into the time period in New York that the thing was being made in and took place in, London bringing her knowledge of Greek lore to, or Greek legends to the mix that kind of worked their way into the film. Hera's vengeance. She's so angry. <laughs> she has so many feelings. <laughs> Such a bitch. But all of those things, there were always little things to find and pick apart and bring to the surface. And to be able to do that on an otherwise uninteresting bad film was a joy to me and is a great example of the fact that the reason that cinema as an art form is so beautiful and why I have loved cinema for most of my life is that there's... A story in every frame of a movie. There is a tale in every production note of a film to learn and to go into. And Hercules in New York is a great example of finding those wonderful, beautiful tales in an otherwise unremarkable film. Also, there's just a guy in a clear bear suit running around that Arnold Schwarzenegger punches in the face. I have to punch the bear! Come on! This is a bail for ya. Have to put, yeah. That's all. That's not even how he sounds in that movie. My God, jeez. People do bad impersonations of Arnold Schwarzenegger in that movie. He just sounded like that. That's just. Father, I am tired of Mount Olympus. <laughs> tired of the same faces. Mind your own business, Venus. Except for the dubbing. Can you do the dubbing voice? Yeah, uh, the dubbing voice is uh, so, what was, it's like such a strange cadence to that too. It's like uh. Father, I am tired of Mount Olympus. I am tired of the same faces, the same people. You let Mars travel as he wishes. And it's real that you pointed this out. That voice is so strange because it has to keep time with what Schwarzenegger was doing on set, but still do this straight American accent or whatever. I feel like I've heard that voice in other badly dubbed foreign films in the past. I don't know if it's the same guy or there's just some sort of like stock voice that all dubbers go for and I'm an American. This is clearly a film about Americans that is being made in America. I don't know. One of my favorite things about German film dubbing so this is not yeah I guess dubbing over Arnold Schwarzenegger but just films that come out in English that are then screened in Germany. I don't know if they still do this but I remember for a little while, particularly in the 90s, a lot of the specific stars that tended to do a lot of movies would have certain voice actors that were assigned to them. So the same guy did all of Robert De Niro's German dubbing, or the same Mm -hmm. guy did all of Tom Cruise's German dubbing. And so there was a consistency across the board, which I think is a very cool thing to do. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of extra work. And I don't know exactly how many voices each person did that were like, yeah, my career is as Robert De Niro's German voice dubber. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But there is a band in Germany called E Nomine, which I've always loved as a band. But one of their albums featured vocals by the different German actor voice dubbers. And yet they had on the back 
featured by, and it would actually have the American actor that they dubbed. So on the back of this album, it'd be like oh. featuring Robert De Niro and then like featuring Nicolas Cage. And <laughs> it actually wasn't Robert De Niro and Nicolas Cage. It was the German voice actors of Robert De Niro and Nicolas Cage. And so that was but, what got me down that whole German deep dive in the first place. Because uh, I was like, why does yeah. this say it's sung by Robert De Niro? Like, this is not Robert De Niro. And then like, oh, but it's it is German to a German audience. Yeah. yeah. So super <laughs> fun. Nice. Yeah, we'll maybe have you tweet out what that album is, because it's a great album. If you like really dramatic, de profundis sounding techno metal, I don't know. It's cool, though. It's very cool. We'll tweet it out. It'll be out there. Yes. Yeah, Yeah, get more people to listen to (laughs) E-Domine. You're number two. My number two is a very different movie than Hercules in New York. Well, I mean, most movies are. Yeah, that's true. My number two is Beyond the Black Rainbow. Hey, all right. Which, in general, is just one of my favorite films of all yeah, time. Because film. most of what I watch a film for is the cinematography, followed by its intertextual references. Mm-hmm. And Beyond the Black Rainbow, it's really just those two things. It yeah, is a it's... bunch of intertextual <laughs> references to astounding cinematography. So if you like those two things, Beyond the Black Rainbow is for you. And it's a movie that cares about its plot about as much as you care about plot in general, which is to say, not at all. Yeah, this movie is like my soulmate, you know? like (laughs) My soulmate in celluloid, because it's so pretty. And it's about the Cold War and MKUltra and drugs and neon, wonderful landscapes. So the whole thing, with the exception of the weird five-minute turn at the end... Everything is perfect. Yeah, those guys, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so in <laughs> some ways, fuckers. it makes the list just because I love this movie so very much. And so kind of like Fast and the Furious, like it bumps it up there a little bit. But then also, it was another movie that I've watched a bunch of times before doing it for the cast. And one of my areas of study is kind of Cold War related stuff. And so I was fortunate enough to first see the movie and have an idea of what they were doing with it. I could tell their mm-hmm. Timothy O'Leary references, I could tell their MK Ultra references. But then at the same time, I'm like, okay, I really want to just sit down and kind of like with Don't Look Now, really pick the technicalities apart. But with this one, really pick the intertextual references apart because there's just so many happening here that are just getting woven together. And of course, it's impossible to do every single one of them. There are references that did get left out of that episode that were just kind Mm. of minor or that I probably missed. But at the same time, it was something I always wanted to do from when I first saw that movie back in like 2010. I was like, I I really want to sit down someday and just really try to sequentially break down all of their references in my mind. And so gave me an excuse to do that and i still love that movie (laughs) i love it even more but it's uh yeah always will be a favorite what's your number one uh well i do want to also point out that for a long time after we saw that film prior to even doing the podcast anytime that london would call me and which she does not do very often we're both more texters but anytime that she would call me i would answer my phone and say Thank you for calling the Arborea Institute, where we are here to help you achieve happiness. Yeah. And to see where she would go from there. Which is a lie, because I was calling Benji, and he never brings <laughs> happiness. The cake <laughs> is a lie. Uh, oh, Benji's cake, and the cake is a lie. Tying right. it all together there. Good theming there. My number one, and I wonder if this is your number one as well. 
I don't know. We haven't had any sameness yet, which yeah, is interesting. So it's very interesting. I just I have a good feeling about this one, but my number one, the reason that this is my number one is that you know, we're called Cinema of Cruelty, and that name comes from the Theater of Cruelty. A genre of theater created by Antonin Artaud. And it was to challenge people in many ways. It was to be a theater that was on its own, deliberately difficult to watch. And sometimes in the cinema of cruelty, we do films that are challenging, that are difficult to watch, to comprehend, to really get what is going on. So that's why my number one film that we've done this past year is Southland Tales. <laughs> yeah. Actually, not my number one. It was close. Oh, okay. I, Southland right. Tales, I, yeah, it should be on the list, but I'm glad you put it on the list. So, yes, talk about Southland Tales. So, <laughs> Southland Tales, favorite? like I said, you watch it the one time and you just think to yourself, what the fuck is this? I mean, that's what people were thinking when it debuted at Cannes, at the Cannes Film Festival. There are lots of stories of that thing being booed. Or people just say, no, boo, bad Richard Kelly. No, you peaked with the dark bunny movie. What is this shit? But on second watch, you begin to get a little bit more of it. If you have a chance to, you read the graphic novels that the film is a sequel to. (laughs) (laughs) That Richard Kelly kind of delayed on telling people, oh, by the way, there are three graphic novels that uh, come before this part of the story. You read those graphic novels, you watch the movie again, you say, huh, okay, okay, I think I get what's going on here. And then if you're like us, you got that really great edition of the movie that Arrow put out that has the uncut version of the film. Uncut, I don't really know if that's the right word for it. but The the version, The can cut, the version that was at the Cannes Film Festival in 2005, I want to say. Yeah, five Mm, or six. Yeah, the, it's a 2006 film, so probably 2005, I would think. Okay, yeah, yeah, because there was a lot of edits that it went through uh, after the debut at Cannes. But the more and more you watch that thing, the more you get from it, and getting to a point where you understand that film and everything that it's trying to tell you and that all the story has to give you, it's a challenge. It takes a while to get there. A lot of people will not want to do that. If you tell someone, yeah, this uh, this movie makes absolutely no sense. It's two and a half hours long, but put in about 10 hours of your time and you'll start to get there. Most people would say, what What the fuck? No, what? That's, yeah, that's... I read the goddamn Book of Revelations for that movie. <laughs> exactly. Book of Revelations. I'm pretty sure some Robert Frost. Yeah, Robert Frost, T.S. Eliot. But th- those weren't the hardships. The hardships were like finally sitting down to read the Book of Revelations to Oof. see how that overlaid with the apocalyptic doom of South and Tales. No, I was actually everything about researching South and Tales was great. Yeah. And it, really, you're not going to fully get how much the Book of Revelations ties into the whole thing unless you also read the graphic novels, which themselves have a lot of references to the Book of Revelations, even more overtly than the film does. So, yeah. Also, it was just fun to really dig in to figure out if the New York Times actually said that God is dead. Or if it did, because it didn't. It didn't, turns out. For the longest time, I thought that there was some copy of the New York Times out there with this front page bold headline that just says god is dead turns out no never happened time magazine asked is god dead in a very 
you know, bleak cover that it did one time. And the New York Times also had this section called Is God Dead? A study on modern sec- secularism. But no, never said that. So it, uh, Elton John's full of shit, I guess, is the takeaway yeah. here. So Benji's a lie, the cake is a lie, and Elton John is a lie. Just <laughs> everything is <laughs> Everything is falling apart. Oh, God. I don't think he's actually a rocket man at all. Oh. Lies. For some reason, that reminds me of what I like to call Caps Locks Harry, or my friends and I call Caps Locks Harry. Cause oh, yeah? We haven't done any of the Harry Potter films. We maybe should, because it would be fun. But mm, the fifth book for Harry Potter, for some reason, I think actually the reason is because he's going through his super teen angst phase, because he goes mm-hmm. through one year of just extra pubescent angst. And I think they had the fifth one is a yeah, lot, it's lot the of fifth. that. Yeah. And the text demonstrates this by having him give most of his verbal dialogue in all caps locks. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fantastic choice. So my friends and I, when we like read those books in high school and stuff, we're like, caps locks, Harry. And there's just one line from Caps Locks Harry that just says LIES in all caps locks with a bunch of exclamation points. I don't remember many quotes from Harry Potter, but I remember that one, just the single <laughs> line, LIES. LIES. And that's, that's what's happening here. It's just all uh, Caps Locks Harry lies. That was the last Harry Potter book I read when it was brand new. For whatever reason, by the time the sixth one came out, I just wasn't interested in Harry Potter anymore, and I didn't bother reading it until someone spoiled the ending of that book for me. you're just so over it. I guess I'm so over it. I, I don't know. It's just My taste had changed, but at some point, someone's like, yeah, and then when he kills Dumbledore off, I'm like, holy shit, Snape kills Dumbledore? You didn't know? I didn't, but I kind of want to know how the hell that that plays out, so... Yeah, then I gave the the sixth book a read. Give it read, read Joseph the Campbell's The Hero's Journey because <laughs> one, I know you have, and two, the wizened mentor always dies and like the uh, that's true. The Very third true. act, third out of fourth act, three fourths of the way through. Uh, <laughs> the penultimate moment, you gotta kill that mentor off. It's just how that shit goes. Also, side note. Yeah. Just a lot of like random asides about Harry Potter all of a sudden sure. in this one. But I don't remember if this has come up on an episode, but it's very important to me that when I was a classics major in undergrad as a classical languages and linguist person, and I was in my little Latin class, there weren't many of us in our little Latin class, because when you get to like advanced Latin and Greek, that's a small pool of people that want to put oh, in yeah. that time. <laughs> like, it's, it's a specialized niche. There's not a lot of use for it as you mm-hmm. go on. So yeah, most people, they, they find something useful to do with their time. But no, I was in my little Attic Greek class and we would get our translation done. And then we would turn to Harry Potter, having conversations about Harry Potter and where we thought the final books were going to go. Ah. Because here's the thing is that yeah. it was clear to me that Harry Potter was just a modern children with wizards retelling of the Oristia trilogy, which I will stand by, particularly the Libation Bears, and which is a play series by Aeschylus where the entire of Athenian law is kind of broken down and set back up and kind of our Harry Potter figure. And it's this whole thing. Basically, it's mm-hmm. Harry Potter, but like Greek version of Harry Potter. And so I'm like, okay, I know exactly where the seventh Harry Potter book has got to go because... We're just following the Oristia trilogy. And so oh. this has to happen. And I was like, well, the Ministry of Magic certainly has to collapse. So it can be like reset up again. These are the people that have to betray at this moment and all this stuff. Not only did all of those things happen, because it is definitively the Oristia trilogy, 
if you open the seventh Harry Potter book, it starts with like two or three quotes. And the second quote is from the goddamn libation bearers. Uh, <laughs> and I was like, vindicated. I guess like JK Rowling, <laughs> I think also took some, she was a classics major or took some classics courses in her undergrad. So it made sense that she had access to this material, but I'd never felt so singularly vindicated in my entire life as to like, <laughs> See upon that page the quote from the libation bears and it's like, yep, called it, nailed it. So yeah. Yeah, she's just ripping off Greek playwrights, you know. No, she actually did a, a fun job of oh. a lot of classics are just revitalized and regurgitated, but fun exercise all around. But yeah, Harry Potter fans out there, like, go go get yourself an Oristia trilogy and, and read it because there are paragraphs that are actually lifted and given to Dumbledore for like his speeches and stuff, wow. which is why you know Dumbledore. He's bad news because he was just breeding Harry Potter to use him as like this pawn in some sort of futile war. And that's clear because that's what happens in the War Statue. Whatever. So, um, an aside, but my number one. My yeah, number one. <laughs> now that we've done talking about Harry Raining Potter because in. of yeah. Southland Tales, I'm curious to, see, to hear what your number I honestly thought Southland Tales would be your number one if, since you hadn't mentioned it yet, but... Yeah, no, it was... No, I want to know now, yeah. I had so many honorable mentions, and so I was like, okay, do we put Southland Tales on here somewhere? Because, yeah, I absolutely loved Southland Tales. I loved looking into Southland Tales. And I think I was just still a little shell-shocked from Southland Tales when I was making this list. Because mm-hmm. I read a lot for Southland Tales. I can, understandable. Yes. You're number one. So my number one comes from not necessarily my favorite, well, all of these movies. Why this is more our favorite episodes instead of like movies specifically from right, the last right, year yeah. is because, I mean, we picked all of these movies for a reason because they're mm-hmm. all very important to us. But a lot of the movies that we picked, we went in knowing that we were going to find stuff on it. So like... Beyond the Black Rainbow, or like Don't Look Now, there's this idea of, okay, I know what they're doing here, and I just really want to sit down and really hammer out the details, because yeah. I just haven't, you know, spent the entire week ruminating on a film before, like I yeah, do in prep for this cast. Sounds a bit like why I said Hercules was my yeah. number two, was like that diving into it and discovering is a wonderful process. Yeah, and so that's where my f- number one came from, because the following film we pitched initially because we were like, okay, let's just have a light one this week and we'll, oh, we'll find something. And then I started looking into Heathers. Oh, right. Heathers. And Heathers <laughs> remains the number one episode for me of a deep dive that just kept unearthing stuff and unearthing <laughs> stuff. Because like, yeah, there was some stuff to find with Hercules in New York. Like, the whole Dior sponsorship and the Greek mythology, but the sheer amount of actually really intricate, relevant stuff that came up in Heathers that just completely changed how I saw that movie was astounding to me. So we first unearthed that the screenwriter had these aspirations to turn Heathers into the next Stanley Kubrick film. Like he was writing that film for Stanley Kubrick. And as a result, suddenly we have all of these Hitchcock and Stanley Kubrick homages and allusions built into the screenplay as little Kubrick bait. We had an initial screenplay that was like three and a half hours long because Kubrick could get away with doing a three and a half hour movie. And then the croquet metaphors. So like I knew that croquet was a big thing in Heathers on the surface, right? They played croquet, but 
the amount of actual insider references to croquet that then matter for the reading of the movie, like the ball becoming poison and chasing the others down to assassinate them and take them out of the game, and the fact that we open at the turning point with Veronica, our Winota Riders character's head slash body acting as the physical turning point as she turns the narrative around and starts saying, like, fuck this. So we enter in media race in the game. So all of the croquet stuff was just really satisfying. Learning that the entire film was actually a loose adaptation of a 19th century novel, Winesburg, Ohio. Like, who would have known? Because, <laughs> like... Then looking into that novel, I'm like, okay, I can see it. But if I had just read Winesburg, Ohio on my own, I don't think I would have been sitting there reading it and going, you know, this is just Heather's. It, it took hearing from the screenwriter that it was a loose adaptation and then looking for that to then sort of notice and be like, oh yeah, okay, I see it clearly. And then the insane ending, original ending to Heather's. Where I they may or may not all be in heaven at the end because the bomb worked or something yeah, like Yeah, like I had always heard the idea that the original ending had the bomb going off and they ended up in prom heaven. And I had a very different image in my mind of what exactly that meant until we looked up the original script and then saw the original ending. And it's like, the shit got crazy and nuts. And we ended up reading a whole section of that original ending for our oh, yeah, Heather's yeah. episode. So there's just, there's just so much stuff in the Heathers episode, and not that there's not just as much stuff in some other episodes, like Southland Tales also clearly has a lot of stuff, Eyes Wide Shut has a lot of stuff, but I knew going in it was gonna have a lot of stuff. Right. Heathers yeah. was like the film that came, and Lost Boys did this a little bit for me too, because I was trying to kind of <laughs> pick between Lost Boys and Heathers in terms of which one was the... The biggest surprise, because Lost Boys, I ended up reading the uh, novelization and getting a lot of fleshed out details from the mm -hmm. official canon novelization that I hadn't while watching the movie, which I found fun. But yeah, you did the cool stuff. I had to watch the sequels. Yeah. Fuck my life. Yeah. Well. <laughs> oh, man. If it makes are... you feel any better, we are gearing up to do Cruel Intentions. And I, I took on the <laughs> Fuck My Life Film Festival of Cruel Intentions. I watched every single goddamn sequel, prequel, and failed pilot for Cruel Intentions that I could possibly Cruel find. Intentions 2 is a prequel. Yeah. It's a goddamn prequel. And a failed what? TV pilot. So stay tuned for that. Oh. We're going to, I'm so excited to talk about Cruel Intentions. I'm obsessed with Cruel Intentions. Oh, but boy, yeah, yeah, Heather's was a delight. It was just, there's so much there. And mm. yeah, it was kind of our, our new set bar for sort of like with Hercules, but Heather's came first in this regard where yeah. sometimes we just pitch out a film and we're like, we'll probably find something. <laughs> like, something's gonna shake loose there's always something surprising about each film that we do but yeah usually we go in knowing what we're gonna find but on I occasion got... there's just grand surprises i guess i went with hercules because my my schwarzenegger impersonation is better than my winona Ryder impersonation yeah a little bit i mean i could, I could always get the slater going out there hey you pops how's it going there my weird dad figure who I call son for no reason. It's a strange thing. <laughs> Greetings and salutations. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So, so there you have it. Our top five episodes. Not necessarily five movies. Five. Yeah, our five. By, we got to rock those five by fives. Five by fives. We were talking about this earlier. 
I forget if we were recording while we were talking about this, but 5x5, five five, it does have a number of, of meanings. I hear it sometimes in the world of fitness. It's like a rock, five sets, five, whatever the fuck. I don't know. It's I, I don't do it because it requires you to have the gym to yourself, which anytime I go to a gym, I don't have. It's more for like... Anytime he goes to the gym. So like twice ever, when do you go to gyms? You know, look, the memberships are hard to cancel, okay? I, I want to quit the gym. <laughs> no, it's fair. But what does it mean in gym lingo? I forget. It's It refers to doing, like, five sets of five different, like, exercises in quick succession or something okay. like that. So, like, bench press, incline, bench press, decline, uh, flies lateral raises, something like that. I've got to pencil once I've lifted it <laughs> all. Benji's I, like, I, I know some gym stuff. Oh, God. I know the term lats. I know. <laughs> Working my delts, brah. What's going on? Yeah. Gotta, Do you even gotta, lift, bro? <laughs> clearly not, because I forget what the hell all this means. Actually, my Dungeons & Dragons character is kind of an asshole, and that's one of his phrases. Like, Do you even cast, bruh? That's oh, his catchphrase. Nice. Yeah. Okay, yeah. He's a spellcaster. It's a D&D joke. But yes, that's 5x5 five, that's five five in the world of lifting. You pointed out that in Buffy, 5x5 five five means a thing. Yeah, so I'm more familiar with it as first like a military term, which generally means kind of like an area is all clear, I believe. And then Buffy seemed to adapt this term for their character, Faith Lahane, who... That's like her catchphrase. It's like everything's five by five. Like everything's cool. Everything's great. Ah, it's five okay. by five. All right. So yeah, oh, it's yeah. just a fun phrase. But yeah, I mostly think of Buffy when I hear five by five. But Very now true. we're gonna add a fourth meaning, which is where we each bring five things t- to the table and we pit them against each other. Yes. Well, we do not compare notes prior to it. We go in cold. Normally we compare notes when we do these podcasts because otherwise they would be all over the place and they'd go on for really long. And actually that we completely failed uh, at at avoiding that. So yeah, I was going to say, they're still really long. Yeah. They still go on yeah. crazy tangents. But, you know, I'm, we're this just saying it could it be worse. It could be so much but, worse. <laughs> but yes. So obviously today was our uh, the favorite episodes, not necessarily the favorite movies that we've covered in the, over the past year, but just the favorite episodes that we created from those films our top five from the past year what can we expect to be covering top fives of in the future london so people know what to look forward to oh whatever we goddamn want well that is our it's that's our podcast works and or whatever anybody wants to request so if anyone has a five by five request then yeah shoot us that on twitter instagram or reddit at cinema Mm -hmm. of cruelty but yeah, I'm going to try to come up with some different types of subclassifications, like movies that are about ghosts on drugs or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Very specific subsets, but yeah. yeah, probably top five films that are based on fairy tales or there that you go. feature existentialist dread Yeah, or with a nihilist lens. So we'll pick a, a random subclassification. We'll do a little research. Korean vengeance films. That's a fun one. Ooh. There's so many yeah. great ones. There's so uh, we, many good Korean vengeance films. That uh yeah, you know. We got we have friends who know a lot about that. So You were just on their podcast, weren't you? You were just recently on the Cave Aid podcast talking yeah, about Yeah, I I'd love to go talk to our friends Michael and Robbie over at K Bay about their 
Korean dramas, although this one was their, I think, their third year anniversary, I believe. Wow. Um, so for their anniversary episodes, they generally do what's called Monster Fuck Rally or Demon Ooh. Dick Down, where we talk about different media with demon sex in it. Michael brings some fic wrecks, Robbie brings some boys love comic wrecks, and I bring some film wrecks with demon love. And this year, actually, topically, my two wrecks were The Neon Demon and The Lure, which were two things that we had done as episodes prior. Mm -hmm. So it's like, yeah, you want to see a little lady on lady demonic sexual activity? Check those films out. Technically, The Lure is mermaids, but kind of like dragon mermaids and... They have really scary teeth, so it counts. (laughs) But, yeah. yeah. There you go. So that is, yes, our top five. Our looks at what is to come. What our our friends are up to. It's great to hear they had their third year anniversary. That's awesome. Makes our one year anniversary feel kind of diminutive by comparison but you know where where do you get in life by comparing yourself to others all the time Uh, i'm not certainly not going to do that no sir not old ben here yeah on the plus side it means we have not been talking to each other for hours a week for three years (laughs) no but silver again i yeah we still talk to each other prior to the podcast so i feel like we've talked to each other the equivalent of three years over this last year yeah, we've known each other nine, ten years. Who can keep track? Talking this past year has felt like nine or ten years. It's in that realm, London. This hour has felt like nine or ten years. It's been so. an hour, yeah, yeah. Hey, Ben, you want to do a quick short episode? Like, maybe ten, fifteen minutes long? Oh, that sounds reasonable, sure. This is like three hours shorter than we normally talk, so you This know. is also true. <laughs> Brevity, not our strong right. suit. Here, the thing that we'll leave on here is a little factoid. What do you think is the longest raw recording that we've had for an episode? Eyes wide shut. Actually, yes, that is hands down. That's a that's a more recent one. I was trying to think of it's like our raw recording for Eyes Wide Shut was six hours. Just FYI for anybody who wants that trivia yeah. fact. Yeah. So if anybody's looking at that two episode time and they're like, how did you talk about Eyes Wide Shut for four hours? We didn't. We talked about it for like six. <laughs> Four hours? That would be ridiculous. No, we talked about it for a quarter of a day. Yeah. That's what we did. Jesus. And then I think our second longest one before getting edited down was actually um, The Lost Boys. The Lost Boys? The Lost was Boys a... and The Exorcist. Those were both over four hours Yeah, that's initially. the other one. There's just a lot to talk about on The Exorcist. So, yeah, sometimes we just have to leave stuff out, you know? Yeah, there was a lot going on there. A lot of sequels. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, that's we just talk and talk and talk, and we cut it down to the good stuff for you, our listeners, our cultists, if you will. Yeah, cultists. Cults Yo, are the best. They I'm are. Enjoying our cult. Please. It's, it's way better than Jared Leto's cult, we swear. I, well, I have no objective proof of that, but I have always felt like I was I was born to be a cult leader. You know, when I lead cults, I can just feel mm. it pleasing the universe. Yeah. All right. Uh, we yeah, have we no don't safe have a safe word. word for five by five, I guess. I don't know how we're going to outro five by five, but maybe just say like, yeah, so that's, that's the top episodes of this year. I think we'll say that. And we're out in five, oh. four, three. 
I see two, what you're doing there. One. <laughs> All right, that works for me. Good luck. Cruelty. We started feeling B. We needed to rest our feet. We wanted to take a seat. We looked for a chair or two. How many? No one knew. Didn't know just what to do at all. But then the count spoke. I know what to do. No joke. No need to cause a fuss. We will count each one of us. We were counting, finding the It's one great number. Uh, 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 uh. <laughs> hey, as long as you don't go scratching at me or humping my leg, we're five by five, you know? <laughs>